Well, welcome this morning. Very pleased, very pleased and honored to be in your presence and uh, have Kevin ask me to come and fill in for him. He and Cindy uh, went to uh, Norfolk, Virginia, where their daughter Kendi lives, who uh, recently had a brand new grandchild for them, and uh, the blessing and naming of the baby was yesterday, and uh, they couldn't... Uh, tear themselves away. I don't understand that. Uh, having 15 grandkids of my own, I don't understand that concept at all. Uh, but they couldn't tear themselves away and, 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 find, and, and leave Sunday afternoon to come back, so uh, they are flying somewhere, I think, between uh, Washington, D.C. And, and Dallas as we speak. Uh, at least I got an... I, he's still alive. I got an email from him this morning, so... <laughs> Uh, they are wending their way back from uh, from visiting Kindy. So uh, I'm glad to be able to have the opportunity to, to be here and, and uh, spend a few minutes with you today. Uh, I know that he typically asks if there's any faith-promoting rumors, I mean uh, experiences that, uh, that came about uh, in the last week that anyone wants to share or thought with. Anyone... Uh, have a cool experience, yes. Uh, it's, it's been a, a week of chaos and turmoil. And Elaine, you know, told me to go, you know, at 4 o'clock in the morning when I'm up, you know, can't sleep, worrying about everything, go to, you know, this, to the computer and look up some of the talks and so forth. And I did that. I've never done it before, believe it or not. And pulled up one by... Okay. Iring. Iring. I President Iring, okay. Yes. And I could not believe it, you know, that there were answers and things that he said that just, it brought such a sense of peace to my heart. And then it was further emphasized this weekend and when things were kind of coming to a head that um, I came to church, you know, with some of the peace, but not totally. There was something I was going to do, you know. And I received, I, I can't tell you which words were said, but there was such a peace and comfort that came from coming into a worship service and a community of Christian people. And I'm a fairly new member. I've been an only member for six years. And it, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate and love this church. Yeah, occasionally the gospel works, right? You know, it happens. And I just noticed that one of the scriptures, 23, that we're about to do this morning is on peace. On what? Peace. Oh, on peace, yes. Yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about the olive leaf, the, the message of peace. Yes. Anyone else have a, an experience they would like to share from this past week? Yes, please. Bring chainsaws? <laughs> yeah. 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 You know, isn't that standard uh, in part of the year supply in a man cave? Is a chainsaw? You know, I tried to bring mine on the airplane, but uh, you know, 
I don't know if anybody's been out at DFW recently, but they have a display case of things they've had to take from people at the metal detector, and there's a chainsaw. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. I mean, what was this guy thinking, you know? <laughs> have a chainsaw. Unbelievable. All right, anyone else? Yes. Probably more than we recognize and acknowledge. Good, thank you. Anyone else? Yes, way in the back. Julie. Thank you. Well, if, if I ask you to give an experience, maybe I'm not exempt from that. So maybe I should share something that happened uh, a little while ago. Uh, my wife and I had the occasion to go visit uh, a friend who uh, had lived in our area for quite a while and then moved away. And uh, in connection with moving, there was a lot of difficulties and uh, as you were describing a lot of unsettled and just just, you know, just some difficult feelings and so on and like all of us uh, we're not unique in the church this person doesn't happen to be a member of the church but you know people are, I think are generally trying to be kind and sensitive and and so quite frequently uh, just before she moved when these trials and difficulties were occurring people would ask her how she was doing. I don't know about you, but there are times that, that that seems to be a little... You really don't know what to say, do you? Hmm? I mean, you, I mean you, you, you know you'd really like to say, you know, hey, this is just not going well, you know? Or, you know, I feel crummy, you know? Uh, you, know uh, you know, the world hates me, you know? I mean, we would rather be blunt and honest, you know, and maybe sometimes we struggle with, you know, do we tell a little white lie? Well, yeah, it's okay, I'm doing fine. And, and she had come to the point where she was tired of giving that platitude to people. And, and she, she thought about it for a while and said, you know, what, what is it that I could say in that situation that would that would be something different than either, you know, the little white lie or the platitude, whatever, or the, or the blow-off answer. And she hit upon something I think is absolutely marvelous. She says, whenever people ask her how she's doing, she says, I'm doing what matters. Do we say that very often in our lives? Are we doing what matters? So think about that. And uh, maybe it has a little bit of something to do with peace that, uh, that comes.
The olive leaf today, section 88, the message of peace. Uh, I borrowed a, found a, borrowed a cartoon from Kevin. Grandpa, why are tree trunks bigger at the bottom than at the top? Well, it's a law of physics, son. Being bigger at the bottom gives trees greater stability. Think about it. You've never seen Grandma tip over, have you? <laughs> Nope, just you. <laughs> this guy is great. Ah, some, some timeless wisdom. Timeless wisdom. Okay, to begin. To begin. 1832 was a bad hair year okay, for the prophet Joseph Smith. Really a bad hair year. Okay. Let me review with you what was besieged and, and the overwhelmed feelings that he had. And no doubt was, was feeling it just wasn't going great for him. Okay. In the spring, actually before the spring thaw in the middle of March in the winter, uh, hard and feather. And shortly thereafter, because of the exposure, one of the Murdoch twins that had been given to Emma to raise because Sister Murdoch passed away, died. There began to be some problems down in Missouri. Some jealousies, some... Uh, uh, misunderstandings, some ill feelings about, and, and so on, that uh, made their way back up by letter from W.W. Phelps and some others back to Joseph. And uh, it resulted in a trip down to Zion. About, oh, I guess he left about a month after he'd been tarred and feathered. He was tarred and feathered in March. About a month or so after that, he, he and a couple of the brothers went down to Missouri uh, he and Sidney uh, went down to try and, and help uh, the saints down there who were struggling and had communicated some of their feelings. And, and they weren't real positive, by the way. It wasn't a, wasn't a great letter. Uh, and, of course, this interrupted him in his assignment, which you remember he had just gotten, uh, to jump over and start working on the New Testament in translating. And so he was frustrated by that, that all these things were now coming up and, and keeping him from doing the translating that he knew he had been given an assignment to do. Okay. They got back from Missouri and they thought that they had patched things up. And particularly uh, Edward Partridge and Newell Whitney, they didn't see eye to eye. Remember, Partridge was the bishop down in, the general bishop down in Missouri. Uh, Whitney was the bishop up in Kirtland. They had some feelings. Uh, uh, Sidney and, and Partridge didn't get along. Uh, they, were, they were having some personality issues, etc. And, and they thought they'd, by the time they left in mid-May to head back for Kirtland, uh, Joseph thought that they had gotten things taken care of and smoothed out and, and got everybody kind of back on the train track again. 
Well, that lasted till November, when Sidney Gilbert, who was the manager of the properties down in Missouri, and again, W.W. Phelps wrote some really, this time even more scathing letters to Joseph. And uh, this very much upset uh, the prophet. Uh, in the meantime, when he got back from, from uh, Missouri, sometime in the summertime, he and Emma moved back over to Kirtland, even though things were not great in Kirtland. Remember, Kirtland was, was where Ezra Booth and, and, and uh, Eber, what's his name, Eber Hales, were stirring up the pot. They'd written articles, remember, in, in December. They'd, they'd written 13 articles about Joseph, and, and uh, Booth had abandoned the church and so on. Even though Kirtland was not as, you know, remote as Hiram. Hiram was, Hiram was 30 miles away from Kirtland. He thought he was far enough away from all the riffraff. But he had to move back to Kirtland because things were, were a problem in Kirtland as well. So he moved back. Uh, a man named Jesse Gauss had joined the church. And, in fact, he was such a fireball initially that Joseph asked him to be his counselor. He was called in Section 81 to be his essentially an assistant or a counselor and uh, that worked for a while and then one day Jesse just got on his horse and left town and nobody ever saw him again okay so you know here he was you know somebody who'd come in and really had helped him deal with some of the issues in the church and someone he could pass assignments to one morning just you know hopped on his horse and left uh, of course one problem there was that Jesse uh, had made one trip already to the east to go back to his uh, to see if he could convince his wife to join the church, and she absolutely refused to join the church. And uh, so I don't, you know, nobody knows. I mean, there's no record of him after leaving Kirtland the second time. So, so Joseph lost a friend. Uh, the United Firm, which was the, the name of this uh, endeavor to have members sign their properties over, consecrate them to the Lord, and then be back deeded to stewardship, that wasn't working, that hadn't been started. The saints hadn't done it, even though they'd been asked to do it. Uh, Sydney, as a result of on the same night that Joseph was tarred and feathered, you'll remember that Sydney was also gathered up by people in the mob, and uh, instead of tar and feathering him, they hitched him to a horse and drug him around on the frozen ground. His head bouncing on the, the hard frozen ground, and so Sydney had some difficulties. He sort of went bonkers for about six months. He he really had some mental difficulties as a result of this treatment. And as a result, Joseph had to relieve him of his responsibilities in translating. You may remember he was helping Joseph translate the New Testament because he had such a knowledge of the New Testament. But he had to release him from that. And uh, the person who was uh, who stepped in was Frederick G. Williams, who eventually became Joseph's first counselor in the first presidency. But Sidney was, was not himself for a while. And uh, it took probably six months in the October, November before uh, Sidney really kind of got back. He never got fully back, but, uh, but he, was, he was out of commission essentially for six months. And then uh, right in the, in the late fall, uh, Joseph was, uh, and a couple of the brethren ran over to the east in New York City and, and to take care of some things. And uh, he got back just before uh, Emma gave birth. So Emma was struggling with child, you know, being with child and, and all that. And he got back just barely in time to see the baby born. So that was a little bit of a trial for him. And then to top the whole thing off, I mean, you know, 
pretty bad year so far. I mean, some good things happened. You know, revelations were continuing to be received, etc. But it seemed like every time he turned around, something bad was happening. Okay. And then to top it off, on Christmas Day in 1832, the Lord revealed to Joseph Smith the revelation about the wars. Okay. So if you read 87 very carefully, many people don't. They, they leave the S off. They see the war in South Carolina, or beginning in South Carolina. Uh-uh. It's wars and the, the deaths and misery of many. I mean, what a heck of a thing to give somebody on Christmas Day. Huh? You know, what if you opened up a present? You know, oh, by the way, there's going to be a bunch of wars start you know, on Christmas Day. Well, Kevin and I got curious about that, so we Googled and thumbed. Okay? And it turns out that Wikipedia has something called the List of Wars. And they are, they are organized at a little grid every 10 years. And uh, so we went to 1832, and we started counting them. From 1832, when the Lord gave this revelation about the beginning of wars okay, in many nations, deaths of many. Since 1832 to today, there have been approximately 470 recorded wars in the world. And if you divide that by 180 years, which is how many years it's been since 1832, that's about three a year. Three wars a year somewhere in the world, many involving slaves who are not necessarily the slaves in the United States at the time of the Civil War, but were slaves of their government, or, or, or whatever, people who were kings and, and, and over, you know, uh, and, and oppressing people who tried to become free. Some of them won, some of them didn't. But there have been four, over 466 wars. Okay. So, I mean, no wonder Joseph was kind of feeling down. What are you feeling down? And then along came Section 88. It came on December 27th, two days after he just had this incredible revelation about the wars. In fact, he was so upset about that revelation on wars, they didn't print it in the DNC until 1851. Now, they made some hand copies of it. In fact, Orson Pratt made a copy, and he walked around on his mission telling people that Joseph was a prophet and so on, which actually turned out to not be a very good idea because, uh, as Kevin, I think, talked about last week about the Nullification Act in, in South Carolina, that, yeah, there was going to be a rebellion, and South Carolina actually what? They, they actually said, we're going to secede, and here's the drop-dead day of January 31, you know, 1833. Uh, you know, and people have pointed to Section 87 as, a, as an evidence that Joseph was not a prophet because it didn't come true for 30 years. Okay. But, but as far as being printed in any DNC, it wasn't printed until 1851. Okay. So, but two days after that, Section 88 comes. In fact, it came uh, in three days. It came on the 27th, part of it on the 28th, and part of it on January 3rd. Uh, there were ten brethren assembled at the time that the revelation was given. 
And what they did is they met uh, in, uh, in Neil Whitney's uh, store upstairs. Uh, has anybody been there? We're in Neil Whitney's in the, in the, for the School of the Prophets. Yeah. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, where the School of the Prophets was, and upstairs. And there were ten of them met. They, they assembled them together, themselves together, and they uh, began with prayer. And they, every one of the ten, they were in a circle, shock of ages, they were in a prayer circle, and each one offered an individual prayer. Okay. took quite a while to just have the opening prayer because Joseph felt that each one should offer a prayer, which they did. And following the last prayer, then section 88 began to be revealed to these uh, ten brethren who were witnesses when Joseph receiving it. And of course, uh, it's called the olive leaf. Joseph referred to it as the olive leaf. Joseph Fielding Smith once wrote, it is a wonderful revelation. It covers so many things of vital importance to every member of the church. Take it as your theme. And he, was, he was very, very excited about it. And that's from the Improvement Era in 1953. So, after they received this, in uh, a few days after January 3rd, Joseph in the History of the Church, you can look it up in Volume 1, wrote a letter back. He had not responded to the letters from W.W. and Sidney Gilbert that he'd got in, in November. He had not responded to them. But now he felt impressed to. And so a few days into January, after the revelation was received, uh, he wrote to W.W. Phelps and sent him a copy of Section 88. I think this, is a, this, this shows Joseph's character. I mean, here, W.W. had written one of these letters that said, I, I think you're a fallen prophet, essentially. And Joseph wrote and said, here, read this. And he gave him section 88. He said, I send you the olive leaf that was plucked from the tree of paradise, the Lord's message of peace to us and to you. Think about what I just reviewed concerning the bad hair year. We have the satisfaction of knowing that the Lord approves of us and is accepted. And we are accepted. Section 88 assuaged all of that stuff that happened in 1832 for Joseph. The Lord took care of it. So the question to start our discussion. How can we receive an olive leaf and know that we are approved and accepted of the Lord? Is that just reserved for prophets and apostles? Yes, please. Patriarchal blessing is an olive leaf. Yes, anyone else? 
how can we receive theology from the Father? Yes. Just ask. Just ask in prayer. Ask if you're doing the right thing. If you're facing mm-hmm. Is that tough to do? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why? Most of us don't want to admit we're not, quote, mm, up to par, you know. We're afraid of the answer. Well, we, yeah, we're afraid of the answer, you know. <laughs> we don't like to be told, no, you're, well, you're a little short today, you know. You're one sandwich short of a picnic, you know, or, you know, or uh, whatever. You know, we don't, we don't want to hear that answer, so we don't want to ask. Any other thoughts about uh, about? The Lord said he'd send a comforter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And one of the messages can be, you know, you're approved of the Lord. The Lord's happy with you. you know? Is that something you should ask? And I think the answer is yes. I think we should ask that periodically. You know, are you happy with me, Heavenly Father? You know? And if not, you know, help me understand what I need to do. Or help me recommit myself to do the things I already know I'm supposed to be doing. Try a little harder, you know. And so what does the Lord do? We're complaining about the 100-pound the rock in front of us. He gives us a 150-pound rock to pick up, you know. <laughs> yeah. Once in a while that happens, doesn't it? And we, have to, we have to row a little harder. The wind blows a little stronger. Doesn't always necessarily make it easier when he says he approves of us and, and is accepted. But and as you think, you know, what a magnificent feeling that Joseph had after our, after reviewing in his mind everything that happened in eighteen thirty two and for the Lord to say, Hey, it's okay. You know, you're on the right track, you're trying to do the right things. I, I think that somewhere we mess up and think if we're living like we're supposed to, life will be easy and we're not going to have problems. Um, I have four miscarriages. And when I was going through the fourth miscarriage, I have six children. I'm very blessed. But when I was going through the fourth miscarriage, I was like, what am I doing wrong? You know, why is this happening? And um, I received such a testimony that... God would never have us go through something difficult in our life if it wasn't really important for our personal growth. I would never do that to my children. I love my children. Well, he loves me, and he would never have us go through difficult things unless it was important for our spiritual growth, and he will be there through it with us. Absolutely. Thank you. Anyone else with a thought? Yes. Priesthood blessings. Priesthood blessings are another one. Yeah, fathers' blessings to their children. Priesthood blessings at other times. Uh, being set apart to callings. So anyone, don't raise your hand. It's a sort of a rhetorical question. Has there been occasions when you've been set apart to a calling that there's been some words of, of acceptance and approval by the Lord that, that this is what he wants you to be doing right now, that this is a calling from him? You know, why did they call me to be a scoutmaster? You know, I mean, ah, that's the last calling I want. You know, that, we can we can get there. Turn to verse two in section eighty-eight. An interesting, interesting 
phraseology is in verse 2. This is where Joseph understood that, that he was approved and accepted. The Lord talks about... Let me see. Uh, someone got a long, long a, a big, powerful voice. Read verse 2 for us. I'm going to have verse 2, big voice. Please. Okay. Joseph was just told his name's in the book of life. Wow. The names of the sanctified. And it says the alms of your prayers. I got to thinking about what is an alm? So I looked it up. Googled and thumbed it and looked it in the dictionary and and everything that I saw, with the exception of this definition right here, which I, which I found the most comforting to me, implied, and the references were all to, especially when I looked in the Bible dictionary and so on, everything had reference to you know, giving alms to the poor. Okay. And even this somewhat applies that. A religious rite which involves giving materially to another as an act of religious virtue. And before I forget... Uh, I want to say thank you for bringing the, the, the gifts for the, the Christmas program. Uh, that's certainly one of those alms that uh, does not have your name on it. And certainly the recipients will never know. But that's certainly an alms recorded in heaven. So thank you. So it got me to thinking. Are we supposed to... It says here that... that the alms of your prayers have reached heaven. Well, wait a minute. Is the Lord in need of... Is the Lord poor? Are we supposed to give him something because he's poor? No. no and, and even this one, you know, a religious life involves giving to another as an act of virtue. You know, I was good with that until I, that word materially. That, no, the Lord, does the Lord need material blessings from us? No. So, so what's going on here? There must be a, another meaning. There must be something else that's involved in almsgiving or alms in your prayers. Now think back for just a second what I said happened as the, as the, pre, as the precursor of this section being given. What did they do? Ten brethren prayed in succession to find out the will of the Lord. I suspect that much of their prayer was an alms-giving to the Lord. I suspect if you looked for a common theme in what they were, in what they each prayed about, it had something to do with alms in your prayer. So, what are alms in our prayer? I think you had a, wanted to make a comment. Yes. Okay. Can go with that. Anyone else have a have a thought about what what's this alms in a prayer? What was going on? Yes, sir, please. Well, I think that the alms in the prayer 
Yes. Okay. I think that they they probably were saying, you know, it wasn't working out with our program. Maybe we'll decide your program now. You know, we'll try to get a little closer aligned to your will and what you want us to be doing. I think that's an alms of prayer. Very good. So then I thought, well, wait a minute. It says these alms are recorded in the book of life, along with the names of the sanctified. Hmm? Why would the Lord keep an inventory of alms? There's got to be something a little deeper here. So the principle is almsgiving. So what do we learn from the principle? And I started thinking, what's, what is in the book of life? What's recorded there? Well, I think the first thing that's recorded there is the names of those who've sanctified themselves. And we'll talk a little bit about that later on this morning. I think there's a list there of the blessings that we have been bestowed. I think the Lord's kept track of what he's blessed us with. And then I think the alms are the gratitude that we give back where we recognize that even though we had a bad hair year, things weren't really that bad when we look at it. And there were things, that, you know, we had experience and we learned and we grew from those experiences. And maybe the alms of our prayer are, is the gratitude that we express in the prayer. And finally acknowledge to the Lord not just the biggies. I mean, it's pretty easy to remember to thank the Lord for the big ones. Okay? What may not be so easy and may not as frequently be done is to remember to thank the Lord for the little ones. You know? Like being on the earth at this point in time. There could be all kinds of things. We all know that our actions are recorded on the books of life. What we're done because... We're told we're going to be judged out of the book. So it has to have our actions there, both the good ones and the unrepented ones. Why aren't the repented ones there? They're gone. They've been erased. So it's only the good ones and the unrepented ones that are sitting on the book of life. Our righteous desires, which is where we want to what? Align ourselves with what the will of our Father is. I think there's a number of things that are in that book of life that we need to think about. But... As I thought about it, and, and, I, and I, the thing that first occurred to me in thinking about, well, what's in the, if, I, if my name's there, then, then what is the alms of prayer doing in the book of life? And it's, it's our gratitude. Okay. That's, that's probably the only other thing than our will we can really give the Lord is to thank Him okay. and express gratitude. And nothing is too small or insignificant to thank the Lord for. In fact, I suspect the list of things we've overlooked in thanking him for is a little lengthy. All right, so he says, uh, you know, this is where we are. Then he begins to talk about, and I think I may have a slide out of, out of, uh, yeah, I have one slide out of order, so... Forgive me, we're going to slide one slide and then I'll come back to that one. 
Section 88, in addition to this wonderful comfort that Joseph got, as he called it, the olive leaf, the, the, right off the tree of paradise and the peace to us, a message of peace. Uh, I think another thing is a part of 88, and that's how to see. How to see. About verse 41. If you'll go down to verse 41, please. Been about 30 some odd verses talking about Christ. Uh, light, His power, etc. We're going to come back to light and that in a minute. But I want to go to 41. He is above all things, in all things, is through all things, is round about all things. All things are by Him and of Him, even God. 41. Brigham Young, in one of his uh, writings in the Journal of Discourses, Abner Neeland, who was a citizen of Boston and who was put into prison for his belief in an essay which he wrote, uh, made this broad assertion. Remember this? I mean, this happened in Brigham Young's time, not too long ago. A man was put into prison for an essay he wrote. Instead of believing there is no God, I believe that all is God. And at that time, it was deemed to be heresy. And they threw him in jail. Amazing. So what are the, some of the things we have to learn to see? Because I believe that's what the Lord is teaching us in the first, roughly the first half of section 88, is how to see things. Now, how does he help us see well, he's given us light. He gives us light. Now, we're not quite to it in the Book of Mormon yet in our Sunday school classes. It'll be uh, probably another month or so before we get to the, to the lesson that's in the Sunday school manual about coming out of the uh, Book of Ether. But uh, I was reading ahead a little bit the other day. And so, uh, reading about uh, Jared, the brother of Jared, and, and the preparations they were making to, uh, to uh, cross uh, the, the ocean when they got to it and be, and be taken to a, a new promised land. And you remember that one of the difficulties that, uh, one of the difficulties that they said they were going to experience, given the design of the boats, was how will we have light? When the boat is, you know, either underwater, or when we have to shut the at night, you know, so on. There's going to be great periods of time when we won't have light. So, what do we do about it? And we're all familiar with what the story is and and how this how the problem was solved. But I thought about it sort of a different way. Now it says the Lord, you know, touched the stones that that the brother of Jared, Mahanrai Moriankumar, his name, that he brought and asked the Lord, said, well, if you'll touch these, then they'll glow with light. Well, what I think happened, I don't think, you're not going to find this in a physics book anywhere, where this uh, phenomenon is explained and how it works. I mean, how do you get light out of a rock? Okay. How does that happen? Well, I think it came from 
right here. He's above all things, in all things. Okay? We have just been told here in section 88, we haven't read it yet, but we'll go back and read it, that Christ is the light in everything. Everything. So, I said, now, it's interesting, in the Book of Mormon, we have two stories given to us. One's at the front of the Book of Mormon, the story of Lehi and his family, and their exiting from Jerusalem, and being guided to ultimately to a, a new land. And by the way, did you ever, anybody ever notice that the first 50 pages of the Book of Mormon are that one story? 10% of the Book of Mormon is one story. That might be fairly significant. Okay? And maybe we should look at that story in light of the process of saving our family and ourselves. It might have a lot more meaning than just crossing the ocean. And so we not only have the story of Lehi and his family, but we have, as the Lord has always done, in what? In the mouth of two or three witnesses, all truth will be established. We have a second witness of another family who what? Got into a boat and was taken to a new place. And the stones... Okay, as, as, as incredible as it was, and physics, I don't know how the Lord did it, don't know how it operated, that they shone, okay, both day and night. Okay? These stones provided plenty of light for people to see as they were doing their activities while they were in that boat. Okay? Provided plenty of light. It wasn't just a 20-watt light bulb, there was plenty of light. We don't, I can't explain it. Okay? We don't know. But, but I, come, I came to realize that if I look at this symbolically, okay, somehow the rocks became receptors of light. Christ, what? Transferred light from him, and there was something done to those rocks that they became receptors of light. Okay? You, you can't have light emanate from Christ and not be received. Okay? You have to have a receptor to receive the light. And those rocks became receptors of life. Well, isn't that what we are? Isn't Christ in us? It's a very interesting and arresting almost thought to think of. Christ is in us. He says he's in everything. He tells us here, I'm in everything. And one of those things that's in us is a receptor to the light of Christ. It has to be. I mean, God says that I gave every man the light of Christ. What, it, there's a receptor in us that, that accepts and receives that light. Now, some of us act on it and some of us don't. But I think one of the things that is in us is this receptor. And just like in this story about the Jaredites crossing the ocean with their little light receptors of rocks on their boat, we are wet. We're in a sea. And we have a receptor of light in us. And the Lord will what? He will send light that the receptor can pick up on. Yes? Actually, um, wouldn't it be that we are receptors and we are choosing whether we are receptors of light or darkness? Uh... 
I don't know that we choose darkness. I think we just refuse to take the light. I think we refuse to take the light. Yes. So now let's go back to my previous uh, slide here. Because there's a set of verses that we've skipped over where the Lord talks about the different testators and, and what light they transmit to us and then let our receptor inside of us accept. As I mentioned, the spirit or light of Christ is what? Giveneth to all men. And what? Everyone that hearkeneth to... What? Hearkeneth means what? They let their receptor accept the light. To the voice of the Spirit cometh unto God. It would be virtually impossible if you let your receptor accept the light of Christ not to come to God. It's impossible. So then what's the role of the Holy Ghost? The Holy Ghost is, a, is an additional power surge that's given to our receptors because our receptors now can receive it. They can take that extra bolt of ju- voltage of, of light. They can accept it through the power of the Holy Ghost. And what? Not only will we be led to God, but we will have a testimony of the divinity of Jesus Christ. That's, and if you think back about becoming a member, and I appreciate a couple of you saying you've been your converts. You know, think back to it. The Holy Ghost at one point took the light of Christ and, and now it was substituted and the Holy Ghost said, Jesus Christ is who he said he was, the literal divine Son of the Father. And this is his gospel, which is in his church. And based upon that, what do we do? We join the church. And then the Lord says, I will send you the first comforter, which is another name for the Holy Ghost. But this, this function of the Holy Ghost, this first comforter, is to tell us that our sins are forgiven, which happened fairly regularly with Joseph and the brethren. They were told regularly that their little receptors that had gotten clogged up with sins and transgressions were now you know, unclogged and now they could what? They could become well-functioning receptors of light again. And it, would in, and it would take them further down the path. So that's the first comforter, is to tell us that our sins are forgiven. And then, building upon the verses in John chapter 14... 26 through uh, 22 through 26, somewhere in there. Uh, in John 14, the Lord talks about, uh, and because the you remember this is when they were concerned that He said they were finally getting the message that the Savior was going to leave them. Okay? They didn't believe it until then. They didn't understand it. They didn't think it was possible. But now they said, "Well, wait a minute. If you know, maybe it is possible. You aren't going to stay with us forever. Well, then what?" Well, the Savior told him in John 14, I will send you another comforter, even the Holy Spirit of promise. Now, the Holy Spirit of promise is simply another function of the Holy Ghost. Now, what is this function? What is this light that comes from from the Holy Spirit of promise, and we receive that by our receptors in us? What is it? It's our calling election made sure. In other words, recording of your name on the book. The name of the person who's sanctified. 
Okay. That's the uh, that's another comforter that provides light. And then lastly is the second comforter who is Christ himself. So in section 88, we've, the Lord's taken us through okay, how you will be able to see. You will go from the, the glimmers of the light of Christ, which as you begin to come toward God, get stronger and stronger. Those glimmers get brighter and brighter until you get to the Holy Ghost who then turns up the light, the wattage in the light and says, not only have you come, but he is divine. Here's his mission. Here's his atonement. And then the, the comforter talks about your sins are forgiven and then calling election sure, leading toward the Holy Ghost. So he's, he's helping with seeing, with knowing where they're going. Now, to just carry a little further, uh, in, in the verses somewhere around oh, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 in section 88, the Lord talks about his spirit, okay? about his spirit, and what the spirit will do, and so on. Well, there's another little interesting aspect that I ran across as I was looking at the story of, of, of the Jaredites in the Book of Mormon. It turns out that if you look in Ether chapter 6, that once they got into the boat, that the wind started to blow them toward the land of promise. Now, wind is an interesting word. And it's mentioned several times, not only in the Book of Mormon, but in the, in the Old and New Testament. Okay? Several examples of the wind blowing, or the spirit blowing. Turns out, if you look up wind in a Hebrew dictionary, as well as in the Greek, the, the word for wind that's in the verse uh, that talks about uh, uh, in John 3, 8, where the Lord told uh, Nicodemus, the, you know, the spirit of the, the wind bloweth, you know, where the wind bloweth. Well, you can translate that word wind to spirit. Okay? The spirit. It's not just wind or breath, it's spirit. So if we, trans, if we kind of transpose that over to the Book of Mormon and the Jaredite story, it said that the winds blew them toward the promised land. Well, what is that? The Spirit of the Lord was blowing them toward the promised land. And now if we go beyond this physical depiction of being, have the winds blowing them toward the promised land, and think of it symbolically, what is it? We have receptors of light. Light comes from the Spirit. Okay? Both the Spirit of Christ and the Spirit and power of the Holy Ghost. Okay. And the winds, we're going to do what? Or the Spirit is going to do what? It's going to blow us toward the holy, to the promised land. It'll blow us there. So, sometimes when we're thinking about, you know, what our situation in the world is, maybe we should stop and think a minute that the wind, which the Lord purposely and intentionally designed and caused. It says, what's interesting in the Book of Mormon about the Jaredite, it says it was a fierce wind. It wasn't just a breeze. 
It was a fierce wind okay, that was driving them toward the promised land. And so in our lives, sometimes we feel the fierce winds. Okay, and maybe we don't recognize that those fierce winds, because we don't see, okay, are really the Spirit of the Lord blowing us toward where? Home. Home again. So keep that in mind. And the Lord was trying to help Joseph and the brethren understand the connection between light and the Spirit. That our receptors are going to receive light. And it may come with a strong, strong blowing of that wind, which we, you know, why is the wind blowing? Why couldn't the Lord have caused, you know, currents in the ocean to drive them from where they were to the new land? Why was it the wind? Well, because it was the Spirit blowing them to where they needed to be. And, and, and so that the symbolism, symbolism for us in our lives, that the Spirit is going to blow us. And, and then, you, then you, I'm sure some of you have thought of this. What, what, isn't, I can't remember where, the, where it is. It says what? The Spirit, what? Seetheth not to strive with what? The soul of man until when? Until we say what? No. Don't want it anymore. So if the Spirit seeth us not to work with the souls of man, what, I mean, the Spirit is always working with the souls of man. And sometimes it's, not a, it's, not a, it's a breeze, maybe, and sometimes it's a, it's a hurricane. But the Spirit will drive us in our lives and lead us back. Do that. So some interesting parallels when you start thinking, yes, way in the back. I think I think the, the the blowing of the wind is is indicative of that. There's different degrees of power that that the Holy Ghost will use. I mean, we've all heard the stories from time to time of someone you know who literally the Lord will have to you know say it out loud. You know, move. You know, go somewhere else. You know, and sometimes it's just a whispers enough to get uh, okay. I think. I think that was one of those. I think I better move or better go do something. I mean, there's a, there's a, it's a degree of how strong sometimes the spirit has to blow in order for us to, to listen. Well, well, some of us he has to push. <laughs> no, some of us has to push. We don't like being led. <laughs> Their day-to-day, you know, they still have to be themselves and stuff. But overall, 
the bad path and direction that their life was taking was heading them to the promised land. Okay, very good. I would think that that's a good way to look at it. Please. <laughs> okay. Yeah, Jethro was not only a righteous man, he had the Melchizedek priesthood and gave it to, you know, gave it to Moses. That's how Moses got the Melchizedek priesthood. He did not. If you look at his priesthood line, this was another reason the children of Israel found it hard to accept Moses. Because when he told them where he got his priesthood, they said, well, you didn't get it from Israel. You got it from them, <laughs> who were not of Israel. They were, they were from Abraham, They were because Jethro was... Uh, uh, descendant of uh, Keturah, Abraham's wife Keturah, the Midianites, but they weren't house of Israel. They weren't, they weren't what? Jacob. And that was another test for the children of Israel was to accept Moses as a prophet leader with priesthood authority that was real priesthood authority when he didn't get it from Abraham through Jacob. Okay? He got it from somebody else. <laughs> Interesting. Yes? I think that this is kind of clarified for me this um, teaching of the unpardonable sin. You know, if the comforter in the first, you know, his role is the forgiveness of sin and we reject that, then it becomes unpardonable. Is that... Depending on, depending on how far we take it. I mean, no one in this room is capable of doing that. Yeah. So don't worry about it. Yeah, but that, that's, I mean, eventually, I mean, eventually someone will, you know, do that. Think of, think of one other dimension of the analogy about wind. What do we do in windstorms with our eyes? We close them. Does that restrict our vision? If we're, you know, trying to keep the, the wind out of our eyes. Not even, even if it's not blowing dirt and everything, it's just I mean, the, the dryness that, you know, from the wind blowing in our eyes. You know, that's why we don't stick the head out the window and, you know, when the car's going 70 miles an hour, you know, it, we, we may do it once in a while, but it, it's not very fun. You know, well, the wind blowing is what? You know, we, we tend to close our eyes sometimes and not watch and what, not want to see what the Lord wants us to see. Verse 64. Lord goes back to prayer. Okay. Goes back to prayer. Uh, and let me set the stage for this a little bit. Most of you, if I were to tell you that, that around this time, is, or there was a time when Joseph 
told the people, says, if you could stand in the presence of the Lord for five minutes, you would learn more what? You would learn more than what? Just all the books that have ever been written, anything. You would have this you would have this surge of power and knowledge, you know, in five minutes that would just blow you away. Okay? But nobody ever reads the sentence after that expression. We kind of get caught up. Wow! Man, I can't wait for the day when I can, you know, get five minutes with the Lord and just, you know, gain all this knowledge. No one ever reads the next sentence. The next sentence says that it will happen to you through the ordinances and answers to prayer. Joseph tells us how it will happen. Well, what ordinances is he talking about? Temple? One of my hopes is that the next time you go to the temple and maybe you think a little bit about the things we talked about today and and on your own study of Section 88, because Part 2 will be next uh, Monday, so you've got two weeks to study this section. Maybe the next time you go to the temple and do the ordinances there you will see something different. So hopefully that will happen. And and through answers to prayer, answers to prayer, what kinds of answers came to Joseph Smith because of his alms and his prayers? This did, this section did. So it's verse 64 talks about that which is expedient for you. You know, ask the Lord and I'll give it to you. That which is expedient for you. Elder Ashton, how do we know when something is expedient, appropriate, good or fitting for us? Ask the Father in my name. In faith, believing that you shall receive, and you will have the Holy Ghost which manifesteth all things which are expedient unto the children of man. He quoted D&C 18. The brethren had already been told that. This was in, in 88. Now this is a reminder about expediency. The Lord will give you things that are expedient for you. Continuing after he quoted from D&C 18, Elder Ashton said, I have lived sufficiently long on this earth to see that some of my prayers, which I concluded were not answered, were for my were answered for my best good or expedient. Think about that. He said I finally got around to realizing that the Lord did answer my prayer with something that was expedient for me. Didn't understand it, didn't see it at the time. But now I see it. I am still I am still trying to recognize a no answer. He's one of the twelve apostles, and he stands up and says, I'm still, or writes in the February ensign, I'm still trying to figure out no answers. Sometimes the Lord tells me no when I pray. How many of you would think that? That an apostle would ever get a no answer? I'm still trying to recognize and accept silent answers. I'm still waiting on the Lord. And I get impatient once in a while. 
So I'm having to, I'm still trying to be patient and recognize and say, well, that's just, you know, I'm not going to get an answer right now about that. So I see two, I see two elements about expediency. Okay? I see the Lord saying, this is expedient for you, the thing, it's the, it's the right thing to do, it's what I want you to do. Okay? It's the thing. Okay? But the other element of expediency that I see here is timing. Yeah, I want you to do that, but I don't want you to do it right now. I want you to do it later. There is a right time to do the right thing. And both elements need to be there. And that's what he's telling, that's what he's telling the brethren here about being expedient for us. Okay. So as we march down a couple more verses, he tells the brethren... Because there's, there's a lot of discussion. You know, do we... You know, we have one of the things that was the, the bone of contention between the Missouri Saints and the Kirkland Saints was sort of this feeling, especially in Missouri, was, well, you guys in Kirkland, you know, you're right there in Salt Lake. You know, you get the prophet every day. You know, you get to see him Sunday at sacrament meeting. You know, he's wandering around town. You see him at the store, you know. I mean, you guys are so lucky, you know. You get, you get all the good stuff, you know. And we're down here in Zion, you know, this remote area in Missouri, you know. And all we get is occasional letters, you know. We don't see the brother, you know, this stuff. You know. And they were moaning and drumming that they were out in the, you know, in the, in the branches of twigs, and, and the saints of Kirtland had all the good stuff. And that's, that was one of their complaints, is that they said, yeah, that's... And so one of the things, ideas was, well, do we, do we merge? Do we get together? Like, do we pick up stakes out of Kirtland and head for Missouri? You know, do, we, do we join forces again? That was one of the ideas. And the Lord says, no, tarry here. Tarry in this place. And call a solemn assembly. Now, this was something really new for them. They didn't know what this was. What is a solemn assembly? So, solemn assemblies were something that was restored in this dispensation as part of the continuing process. And I want to emphasize that. A lot of people, when you talk about the Restoration, think the Restoration happened. It was an event that happened in 1830 when the church was organized and for the first few years after that. That they restored various priests and offices, and they, they formed the first presidency, they formed the Quorum of the Twelve, and, and so on. Got the seventy going. But, you know, basically, by the time Joseph was killed, uh, you know, the quote, the restoration was over. And, and we tend to view the restoration as members of the church, especially as more time passes by, we tend to think of it as an event that happened back then. We are still in the restoration. We will see more things restored which were spoken by the mouths of all the Holy Prophets. We will see more things restored in our day. It is a continuing process. It's not an event. It's a process. And so the Lord says, I'm, you know, I, want you to, I want you to call a solemn assembly. They were restored in this dispensation. In ancient Israel... These assemblies were held in connection with various feasts and sacrifices and the dedication of Solomon's temple. 
On these occasions, Israel gathered and came before the Lord in a state of ritual holiness. And uh, there are some references. I just listed a, a few of them here from Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and Kings and Joel, which are what, four or five or six there, of different places in the Old Testament where the, the references made to these solemn assemblies that the children of Israel gathered themselves together and, 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 and this solemn assembly was conducted. So it's, it's not something new. This is something being restored by the Lord. So he restores it in verse 70. From the guidance in section 70 and 88, we see that solemn assemblies are to be held to enhance the same spirituality and give emphasis to the importance of the assembly's sacred purposes. So it's... Uh, so the Lord was saying, this is an important thing I want you to do. And he, did, and he, and he does this. We're not going to get to the part of section 88. We'll do that next week. Where the Lord tells them, I want you to build a temple. Okay? And when you get the temple built, then we're going to have a solemn assembly. So he, he lays it out that this is what we're going to do. But he gives them this first indication about a solemn assembly. Okay. This is what Joseph wrote after getting section 88 and talked, and he wrote about this verse 70. And, and this was included, by the way, this paragraph was included in the letter to W.W. W. Phelps that accompanied it was sort of the transmittal letter that went down to W.W. W. With, with a copy of section 88. Okay? This, this was in that same letter that Joseph was penning that I referred to earlier. We must have all things prepared and call our solemn assembly as the Lord has commanded us, that we may be able to accomplish his great work, and it must be done in, in God's own way. The house of the Lord must be prepared, and the solemn assembly called and organized uh, in it according to the order of the house of God. So Joseph, Joseph felt this one very strongly. He said, I'm not sure I understand all this yet. You know, Lord, if the Lord's taking time to tell me this, then you know, I better figure it out. And I'm sure he, he pondered about it. I'm sure it was some, one of those things that the Holy Ghost kind of distilled upon him and said, here's a little more understanding about a solemn assembly, especially as he penned those words. So what are solemn assemblies today? They're at every dedication of a temple. They are the sustaining, they are held and convened, at the sustaining of a new prophet when the predecessor has been called home. We just had one, what, four years ago now that President Monson's been in office. We had a solemn assembly uh, that, uh, in that session of conference. Other occasions is directed by the Lord. Probably, if I were to ask a survey by raising your hand, how many of you participated in a solemn assembly? Most of you probably would have either one of these two. You've either gone to the dedication of a temple, or you've participated in the state con or in the general conference when when uh, President Hinckley was made president, or President Monson, maybe you know, depending on how long you've been in members of the church. For some of us, we've been to you know maybe a bunch uh, of solemn assemblies. I've had the privilege of being in, in some other solemn assemblies in this in the last category. While I was on my mission in Southern California, uh, the president of the church and, and the twelve decided to hold a solemn assembly in the Los Angeles Temple. Now, for those of you who are relatively new in the church, 
and maybe not have maybe have not uh, had the opportunity to tour or go to some of the other <coughs> older temples like Los Angeles and Salt Lake and, and some of the other ones that are that are huge. Uh, and in the LA Temple, for example, up on the third floor, there's this huge room that holds about 3,500 to 4,000 people. And depending on how you set the chairs up, you can get about 3,500 to 4,000 people in the third floor room in the Los Angeles Temple. The brother called for a solemn assembly of all the priesthood leaders in Southern California. And there was about 3,500 of us, something like that. I didn't, I I don't remember the town exactly, but I know it was there. Including all the full-time missionaries who were serving in that, uh, in that region that, that, that could reasonably could get to the Los Angeles Temple. So I had the privilege of going. There are two impressions of that meeting that have stuck with me since, since that uh, year when I was about 21 years, about 20 years old, I guess, and I kind of happened. It happened about halfway through my mission, about 20, I guess. Two things that, that have stayed with me. The first was, I remember we had the feeling of seeing a member of the Quorum of the Twelve say the blessing of the bread of heart. They passed the sacrament to over 3,500 priesthood bearers. And the brother who said the prayers were 212. I'll never forget that. The other thing is this was held on a Saturday afternoon for about three until six. It's about three hours long. About two hours in, it was a hot day in LA, very hot. And of course, the air conditioning. We've got 3,500 people up on the upper floor there. It was getting a little warmish. I mean, it was deep. It was uncomfortable, un- un- but it was still warm. And two hours in, there was a lot of heads. A lot of heads nodding. And Howard Hunter got up and started reading from the Bible. Reading, not in an oration. He started reading from the Bible. And he picked, I'm sure he picked intentionally, a fairly lengthy passage to pick (laughs) out of the Bible. And the passage was the Savior's experience in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he got to the line, I probably won't have all the words exactly right, but he got to the line where it says the Savior got up from kneeling in prayer and went back to find James James John asleep. And, and he found them asleep. <laughs> 3,500 hits. <laughs> He had their attention again. Two interesting things The purpose of the meeting was to, to strengthen uh, the, uh, the priesthood brother in that area. Uh, a number of things were going on in that 
particular time frame in that part of Southern California. And they felt it was important to, to have a, a solemn assembly and priesthood run down there. So they did. <coughs> I've attended another one like that. So I, I've actually had the opportunity and blessing of, of being at two solemn assemblies that didn't have anything to do with blessing or dedicating a temple. Although I've been to, I've been to half a dozen temple dedications, so I've been in those solemn assemblies. And then, of course, I've, I've gone to the, the sessions of conference uh, uh, or participated in the, when they sustain new presence of the church. So I've been those, but I've been on two others. So one of those things that, that I every now and then remind the Lord I'm grateful for those experiences when, I, when they crossed my mind. And it did again when I thought about, you know, alms in my prayers. Do I, do I give alms in my prayers? So what was the promise? I'm sorry this is cut off a little bit. I, didn't, I don't know what happened to the slide there with getting cut off. But another part of the uh, another part of that letter to W.W. Phelps uh, and I, I may let me do this. I'm, okay. Make it a little smaller to read but you can see it. On condition of our obedience he has promised us great things. Yea, even a visit from the heavens to honor us with his own presence. Joseph was told that once they got the temple ready and had this on the center, the Savior would come and visit them. We greatly fear lest we should fail of this great honor which our, make, which our, make, which our master proposes to confer upon us. This was the blessing the promise to anticipate it would drive the saints to stay in Kirtland, to raise the money and build a temple. And unfortunately, they didn't listen because they didn't do anything about raising the money for the temple. Maybe Kevin will talk about this next week. Don't mean to take any of the Sunday for next week. But the saints the Revelation was given in December of 1832. Saints didn't raise a dime for the Kirkland Temple to the They didn't get on Earth for six months. They got called on the carpet for the wait, even though they'd been promised, and Joseph promised them. One of the things that will happen is the Savior will visit us. So... What's the promise? What's, what's the message out of section 88? First part of it. Let us recognize in him and let the light, let that receptor of light in us see some of those things that maybe we have received that we haven't thanked the Lord for. Let's make sure that, we, that we've done our alms and our prayers. Sometimes prayers, all they are, is just a time for us to offer thanksgiving, not to ask for anything. I suspect maybe that's what the brethren were saying in this prayer. They had just had Christmas and so on. Maybe there was a lot of gratitude in their heart, even though it had been a troubled year, a difficult year. Maybe the, the, the Spirit was leading them. Maybe the, the Spirit was blowing them to say, you know, offer your thanks to the Lord. Thankful for what you have, what he's done, how he's blessed your life. 
And maybe after ten brothers have offered their alms in prayer, the Lord said, okay, let me now bless you something else. So then he teaches us about the Spirit. He teaches us about comforter. He teaches us about life. He teaches us about uh, the expediency of prayer and how to get answers and, to, and, and what to expect. Sometimes we're not going to get what we think we want to get because we don't really have our real line of business. And then he starts to prepare them about this solemn assembly to have this very special spiritual experience to go to. So I don't know when the next one will be that, that you might have an occasion or an opportunity to participate in solemn assembly. But if it does come along, I hope you will prepare yourself and remember perhaps a few of the things that I've described today about you know, the experiences I've had with the Solomon Center. That, uh, that will definitely, you know, if you have an opportunity, that's definitely one of those very unique and unusual and perhaps very infrequent experiences that the Lord will bless you for, for being able to participate in the Solomon Assembly. It's a wonderful thing. I'll leave you my testimony. Because of the things we've talked about today. You know that true, and that this is the church of Jesus Christ, the God of the saints. The only true and living church on the face of the earth. And it's going to become more distinct every day. And the challenges that we'll face will be interesting. You know, as Elder Holland once said, if you can't get excited about this stuff, you can't get excited about anything. And you better check your calls because it's probably <laughs> This is exciting stuff. And, and the Lord, uh, the Lord was uh, very gracious of you. One other, one other point we should remember. In this, in this section 88, uh, the Lord changes the relationship between him and the brethren. In the early documented sections, they are called servants. And you say, Joseph, my servant, or my servant, Sidney, that. He uses the word servant, which is a relationship, a servant and a master. And there's a lot that we can talk about in the relationship of a servant and a master. A little later on, he starts referring to Joseph as my son. In 88, it's the first time in the ministry life, this is the first time Joseph and the brother are called my friends. And you think of that relationship. Do you feel like you're a friend of Jesus Christ? Maybe that's one of those things we should be getting home feel like he's our friend. And that connotates so many things when you think about being called friends. And he calls them his friends from then on. And from 1832 on, he wasn't always my friend. No wonder Joseph felt what? Hmm? No wonder he felt what? After all this difficulty, what? I am accepted. How do you feel when you gather someone and have someone and you maybe make a connection and become friends? How, how do you feel about that? I mean, 
that a marvelous feeling that happened? And feel like this other person has approved of you, has accepted of you as a person, and you've done reciprocal with them. No wonder Joseph felt this peace and this this marvelous thing that the Lord was he coupled with. I thought I was an unworthy servant. I'm his friend. Marvelous stuff. And I leave that with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Some of you are voiced and offer up a closing prayer. Thank you for all your comments today. Some of you are voiced. Thank you very much.